Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. It's time for another episode of Not Artificially Sweetened. My name is Michael Brown. My name is Stan Landau. And we're here to talk to you about all things diabetes. Welcome, Michael. So great to be with you again, Stan. What's up on your side? Another jam-packed week in the clinical setting of diabetes and good to see lots of our long-standing patients at the clinic coming in. This time last year and the years before, we were really focused on COVID and the like. And it's nice to extend the narrative and start to think about things that had perhaps been shelved during the time of COVID. In the sessions ahead, it would be nice to spend some time talking about dental care. One of the things I think that's often been overlooked in the last three years, people being reluctant to head off for dental workup. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But you and I both know of many years working in the field of diabetes, there's an intimate link between diabetes, gum disease and dental health in a bi-directional relationship. So mm-hmm. certainly something we're spreading the word not to forget dental checkups. Absolutely. And of course, it's bi-directional relationship with cardiovascular risk. One of my favorite topics. I'm looking forward to that. So watch out for this space. We're very grateful for our listenership who join us each week. And those of you who have taken the time and effort to share this free educational and advocacy message with your family and friends. We'd continue to appreciate it if you could do that, particularly if you find value in these podcasts. Remember, you can send your comments and questions and feedback to our email address, podcast at cdediabetes.coza. And this free educational service is available for you to download on our preferred social media platform, Spotify. Stan, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about not forgetting aspects of general medicine that should be remembered when we approach routine diabetes care. And one of them I've been aware of lately is that of HPV vaccination. For those of you who don't know what that means, that stands for human papillomavirus. And it's a commonly sexually transmitted infection. In fact, about 80% of people over their lifetime get this infection. In most people, within about two years, it clears up. But in some people, it can persist. Most painful in the form of genital warts, but there is also a bi-directional relationship possibly between HPV infection and diabetes. So let's chat about that. So firstly, if you have diabetes, you're not necessarily more prone to getting HPV infection. However, cross-sectional studies point towards a tendency for people who have suboptimally managed diabetes to take longer to resolve this condition. And what is often not appreciated, there is a long-term risk of future cancers. And around 1 in 25 cancer cases across the globe can be attributed to HPV infection. And most commonly, these involve cancers of the cervix, the anus, the vulva, the vagina, the penis, and oropharyngeal cancer. And so with Youth Day having recently been celebrated in South Africa, Youth Day for those of you who don't know, or listeners outside South Africa, is a day where we celebrate the contribution of youth to the attainment of freedom for all in South Africa. We remember those who lost their lives doing that. Also, a second part to the celebration of Youth Day is remembering the contribution of youth to our future. And what better gift can we as parents give our child than to make sure that they are protected against this very common sexually transmitted infection, HPV? So from as young as nine, we can start thinking about vaccinating our children to prevent them against this infection. 
A lot of parents might then think, wow, this means my kid might be having sex, something we don't want to think about. More importantly than that, think about its future implications. And that's one of the reasons I came into chronic health care. In chronic health care, I have the opportunity to change the future. And this is one of the ways in which we can do it. When I was working in a hospital environment, every day I was grieving inside for the people I saw, probably 90% of them in beds in front of me, who were suffering from health conditions that could have been prevented. And in diabetes care, our focus is not on treatment, it's on prevention. So think about that HPV vaccination, both healthcare professionals and people with diabetes. And of course, make sure if you do have diabetes, that your diabetes management is the best it can be. With better outcomes these days for cancer and cancer care in general, Michael, you can't help but think that for many people living with cancer, it's a chronic disease of itself. And we spend most of the time on these podcasts talking about diabetes as the quintessential chronic condition. And you personally have postgraduate qualifications in chronic care. But I'm going to interview you a little bit today. We don't have a studio guest joining us. And I'm really interested to hear about your experiences because the concept of chronic care is still in its infancy, particularly amongst healthcare practitioners who are perhaps less familiar working in and between teams. Mm. So share with me how you got into this aspect of clinical care. Yeah, it's an interesting story. My life's trajectory after I qualified was headed more in an ICU trauma direction. One of the things I was aspiring to do was to get onto the flight service at the then Johannesburg General Hospital. I was working at Ward 163, which was a level one trauma casualty. And as a young person, very exciting, very dynamic, wonderful team to work with. And I really had fun there. One night, the matron of a nearby clinic walked in and said, I'd like you to come and take over the night shift at our hospital as the hospital superintendent. And having designs on getting married in the near future and not having much money and the offer of more salary coming in, I took that job. And again, for the next 18 months, I worked in a hospital environment. And yeah, I enjoyed it. I grew tremendously. But every night walking around that hospital, I just saw people in immense suffering, suffering from conditions that could have been easily prevented in many instances. Eventually, I was asked to come and join the team headed by Dr. Larry Distiller. And that has really led me into the career that has spanned much of my life and has, in fact, changed both my professional and personal outlooks on life. I learned a whole new way of thinking and acting. Chronic care is very, very different from acute care. And I'm glad you brought that up. As healthcare professionals, we are trained in an acute care paradigm. What is wrong? And we're there to fix what is broke. What happens if you have a condition where you're not aware of anything that is broke and therefore there's no stimulus for you to go and seek help or guidance? And that was my problem in coming into chronic care. I didn't know how to make that transition. I think for many people with diabetes, the notion of chronic care, as alluded to in the wonderful podcast we shared with Elizabeth, the long hauler in terms of her type 1 diabetes, that subsequent to the availability of insulin, we converted this universally fatal condition type 1 diabetes to a condition that in fact allowed people to live longer. But in those early years, perhaps the 1930s, right the way through the 1970s, your life was extended, but the notion of complications continued. Mm -hmm. Amputations and blindness, heart disease still continued, including kidney failure, and these in the years even before dialysis. So there must have been a time in the later years of diabetes management where the concept of chronic didn't just become prolonging of life with suffering, but in fact, enhancing the lifespan and the health span that goes with that as well. Right. Where did you recognize that the diabetes then was able to extend that paradigm? I was blessed to work with someone like Larry Distiller, who was, I think, decades ahead of his peers in terms of his approach to diabetes care. And then I took what he taught me, and then I extended that further in terms of 
my approach to diabetes education specifically. That's what I was brought in to head up and I knew nothing about it. So I had to learn very quickly. One of the things I'd learned in psychiatry was to be a self-aware practitioner, which means that after every client interaction, we should sit down and say, what did I do that was positive in that interaction where you can actually feel where the client says to you, yes, that's it. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. And then what did I do that was less therapeutic where the client says, no, no, you're not, you're not getting me. And if you get into a habit of doing that after every consultation, you grow, you can't prevent it. And unfortunately, many healthcare professionals lack that ability to reflect and to be self-aware. They haven't maybe been taught it, or if they were taught it, they didn't quite get the importance of that. I did get that, thankfully. It's not anything special about me. It just, I happened to get that and it enabled me to grow immensely in this area of diabetes care. It took a while, but I think it enabled me to see things that before I was blind to see him. Let me think along timelines here, because you were getting into chronic care at about the time that the concepts of what constituted good diabetes management began to look like. Mm. Let me just put this out there for the listeners, whether you're a person with diabetes, a healthcare practitioner, or somebody caring for a person with diabetes. And it sounds ridiculous to think of this in the modern days, but like before the early 1990s, there wasn't a stitch of evidence anywhere on the planet that if you looked after your diabetes management, and by that I mean, and let's use some of the older language, your diabetes numbers were well controlled, there wasn't any evidence that that actually made a difference to you living longer or having any less complications. Correct. It's crazy. Nobody could say to you, listen, lower is better. Mm -hmm. You come on the scene, you've transitioned from an acute care practitioner in an ER setting to <laughs> this fledgling concept of chronic care at about the time that this concept is. So what do we learn about the notion of diabetes that lower, and by lower I mean blood glucose levels, actually made a difference to the person with diabetes? Well, we had two landmark trials, one in type 1 diabetes, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, or DCCT, and the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study in type 2 diabetes. And both of those trials showed in the respective populations that a policy of intensive glycemic or blood glucose control, and again, we're using the older terms, resulted in a significant reduction in risk for future microvascular or capillary-based complications. Those are complications of the eye, the heart, the kidneys, the nerves, the skin, the sexual organs, and so on. All the capillaries that supply those organs, we found a major reduction. In fact, the DCCT showed us an up to 76% reduction in the development of retinopathy or retina-based eye disease. Now, if you compare that to a financial investment, and if someone said you could get a return of 76% on your investment, the standard advice is run, run for your life, because that is too good to be true. But those are the outcomes we can achieve in diabetes through investment in improved management. Yep. And of course, out of the DCC trial came the concept that around 80% of the time spent with health practitioners during that trial was spent with non-doctor health practitioners, which opened up the ability of diabetes to be treated by a wider variety of healthcare practitioners with possibly different perspectives from their various training standpoints. And it also enabled more cost-effective care. So of course, the role of the diabetes specialist nurse. They'd been around for many years, but more in a technical aspect to make sure that people with diabetes don't eat what they shouldn't eat. It really came out there out of that trial as a profession, a proper specialized profession with a proper evidence base to back it up. 
you can't help but have a history lesson here when you think back to the origins of nursing of itself mm -hmm. back in the mm -hmm. religious-based hospitals in the Middle East around Jerusalem. Sure. And then this very big emergence of care, particularly after the Crimean War. And mm -hmm. we're all very mindful of the role that women like Florence Nightingale played. Absolutely. So here's this idea that lowering blood glucose levels makes a difference, both for people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But all good plans need a very important strategy. You know, very hard to roll out an idea that comes from a clinical trial that's funded predominantly in North America, mm -hmm. well-funded, managed very carefully, people who've involved in uh, drug studies, and perhaps some of our listeners out there want to share their experiences. If you yourself have been involved in a study of a new diabetes medication or perhaps testing the waters with an older medication. So Michael, what kind of blueprints then could be taken from a study or a trial that could be deployed in clinical practice that would make it, I don't want to use the word easier, perhaps more practical or doable for the person with diabetes and the nurse education specialist who had now emerged into this role? There have been a number of papers out there, but I think what Larry DeSilla did in terms of his clinic that started in Parktown back in 1994 he essentially put everything on the line. He mortgaged his house, seriously, to pay our salaries and to bring together a team consisting of endocrinologists, specialist diabetes nurses, dietitians, a podiatrist, biokineticist, pharmacist, psychologist, and so on. And we together worked in an environment of extreme respect. And it was actually a wonderful time. I had the sense that we were almost global leaders in what we did. And we role modeled the outcomes of the research papers at the time. And here we are nearly 30 years later, and there are very few places in the world that actually replicate the findings coming out of those trials and the extensive research that has come out. Unfortunately, from a policy perspective, policymakers still see diabetes as a chronic condition of hypoglycemia for which we give blood glucose lowering medications. And they have no concept of the wider experience of diabetes beyond the physical, the psychosocial, the financial, the spiritual, the cultural, and so on. And the immense self-management burden borne by people with diabetes every day and the effect of a team, a specialized team. Within the academy yesterday, we're designing an educational series for social media and I was sent something to review and I put in my two cents worth and then I sent it off to our team dietitian and wow, what a breath of fresh air. She just looked at it from another perspective and it was, wow, thank you. That's why we have a team. And it's understanding that each person looks at things with a different perspective. And that's what makes it work. I can think of a fabulous blueprint that you have developed over time and certainly something I learned when I undertook my original education training with the uh, CDE back in 2003. And it's come up from time to time on these podcasts in various guises. And we, I, have spoken about the so-called 25 concepts around the letter C. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I want you to take us through this. We may not have time specifically to get through all of it on this particular podcast. And I want you to share with us how that document developed, how it became kind of mandatory in our day-to-day -day clinical practice across the organization. Right. Let's kick off. Yeah, as I said, I came from an acute care background where everything was done by protocol, certainly working in a trauma casualty. Someone was in charge of the airway, someone was in charge of the IV lines, someone was in charge of clocking the person who was in the resus bay and, and so on. And everything was videoed. And every week there was a M&M morbidity and mortality meeting to discuss what we did right and what we did wrong. And then you come into diabetes and everything is like slow motion and we've got to be cognizant of people's feelings. It was a hard thing to understand. It really was. And again, I refer back to the ability that I thankfully had to self-reflect. 
And when I saw clients, I could see every now and then that I did say the wrong thing and to say, well, why did I say that? And why did it hurt? <laughs> and so out of that experience, that reflection came poor concepts in diabetes. It originally started at about nine and it's developed to over 25. And they all started with the letter C, which made it easier to transmit. So before we get into the core concepts, I'd like to say that before you can even hope to understand diabetes care, you've got to be comfortable with handling paradox and uncertainty. Because in acute medicine, things are very black and white or very binary in nature. Naught or one, yes or no, right or wrong. In diabetes, that does not happen. We can talk more about 50 or 2,000 shades of gray. So the first thing is to be comfortable with uncertainty because everything has a rider on it. Well, this is what you do, but if this is present, then you've got to do this. And if you were to draw that out in an algorithm, it just would take up too much space. It would be a spider web that you would not be able to understand. So it's got to become inherent in you. So that's the first thing. The next thing is we've got to start with ourselves. You cannot hope to facilitate life-changing care in someone with a chronic condition if you don't understand your own attitudes, values, and beliefs that drive your behavior towards a chronic condition like diabetes. So if, if, for example, you've maybe got this conception in your head that people with type 2 diabetes, we know that type 2 diabetes is often associated with excess body fat. And so there could be a tendency for us to say, well, people with type 2 diabetes are fat and lazy. And please don't get offended because I'm just talking about how people often think. So if that's your conception, I can promise you it will be transmitted to your client. You are going to show that judgment to your client. And of course, that negates any therapeutic way forward with that client. So we've got to start with ourselves first. What do I think, feel, and believe about diabetes? Look at the evidence, look at practice. And if things are not gelling up, ask why. If the person did not take the insulin as an acute care practitioner, I'd want to say, well, you need to take it because if you don't take it, you're going to get sick and you're going to get complicated. The chronic care practitioner approaches it very differently to say, I can see the H1C is 14%. They're clearly not taking the insulin. Or as we might discuss in a future episode, the insulin might be denatured, which means it's not working. And of course, we've got to find that out. But let's say we've ruled that out and we are convinced that the person is intentionally missing out on insulin doses. And we had an interview recently with Renelle who talked how she intentionally missed out dosages in an effort to maintain her body weight. So we've got to ask the question, why is this happening? Whatever we see, it's to say, all right, so you're battling with your insulin dosages. Tell me more about it. What's worrying you about it? What makes it most difficult for you? I can't tell you how many people with diabetes I see week after week who will tell you if they have seen care practitioners who are perhaps not specifically trained in chronic care management, that they will have been dragged off to a dialysis unit to be shown what their future looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They've been asked to go and to spend a day with a blind person so that they can become familiar with the guide dog in the expectation that if they simply looked after themselves in inverted commas, these horrific complications wouldn't manifest as if shock and awe tactics, as President Bush used to say, would be a meaningful way of enhancing or promoting the quality of diabetes management. It looks archaic at this point in of time. Course. And as I'm listening to you go through these C-based concepts here, we're beginning to see that it is the healthcare practitioner that almost always is going to need to be upskilled in their training. For sure. I certainly didn't come from a background and neither did you because in the 1980s and the early 1990s when I qualified, that was the norm. Doctor says, doctor does, and uh, you can sit passively. Absolutely. And that's why it's great to be aligned with the advocacy movement now mm -hmm. and onboarding the person with diabetes. We've spoken about how the South African diabetes guidelines are going to to be onboarding the input of the person with diabetes. For sure. What comes next then in these concepts, Michael? 
Right. So let's start with the concepts. We haven't actually got into them. I was laying a bit of the foundation first. And as we all know, to build a proper house, you must have a foundation. So we've got to be comfortable with paradox and uncertainty. And it starts with us. We've got to be in the right frame of mind. So the first C is diabetes is common. It's an extremely common condition, both here in South Africa and worldwide. We're looking at the moment around one in 10 people worldwide have diabetes in some form. And by 2045, it's expected that that figure will rise to one in eight people. So that's a problem already. The other thing is that it's getting commoner, which is just borne out by that rise in prevalence. Part of that is that three out of four people with diabetes live in lower to middle income countries. And in fact, Africa is going to bear the biggest proportional rise in diabetes prevalence over the next 20 or so years. So we've got to be aware of that. The other thing about diabetes being common is that there are three groups of people healthcare professionals are totally blind to. And these are firstly, those people who are undiagnosed. Now, it seems strange to me, but I suppose for people whose first language is not English, many of the healthcare professionals that we are training at the moment think that the word undiagnosed means you do not have diabetes. No, it means you have diabetes, but no one knows about it. Neither your healthcare practitioner, nor do you. And that's a problem. The UK PDS study showed us that on average, people diagnosed with type 2 diabetes already had that condition for up to 7 to 12 years at the day of diagnosis. So that means they've been exposed to the harmful effects, the toxic effects of raised blood glucose for that length of time, but no one was aware of it. And so, of course, we see at time of presentation, many people with type 2 diabetes already have what we call a complication, not a symptom, a complication, an outcome, something like a heart attack, something like a stroke, maybe an ulcer on their foot, maybe peripheral neuropathy, whatever that could be. So that's a problem. And the reason why one in two people worldwide or undiagnosed, is that for the majority of people with diabetes, they don't have symptoms. And we'll get more into symptoms later, but that's an important concept. They don't have symptoms. So of course, if you are in an acute care health environment where the first question is, what is wrong? And the person has no symptoms, well, nothing's wrong. Doesn't mean that there is nothing going on. And you can see there's a lot of mental gymnastics that the healthcare practitioner now has to adapt to. The next category is that of intermediate hypoglycemia. Those are people who don't have healthy, normal blood glucose ranges. They don't have blood glucose high enough to be diagnosed with diabetes, but they have some in-between range that predisposes them to cardiovascular risk. And then the final of the triad of groups of people who most healthcare practitioners are blind to are women with previous gestational diabetes. Often, once we've managed it over the course of the pregnancy, labor, and the couple of months after to check if it still remains, it's generally regarded as a fire and forget. Cheers. The acute problem has now passed. But unfortunately, these women are particularly at high risk for development of future type 2 diabetes. Not only that, through what's called fetal epigenetic programming, if that woman was not managed properly during the pregnancy or was carrying an excess of abdominal fat, that fetus, that baby, can now be programmed for future excess adiposity and type 2 diabetes. Michael, you've hit the nail on the head that the concept of diabetes simply being a condition associated with raised blood glucose in the person with the diabetes is kind of dead and buried at this point in time. Absolutely. The implications for both their health, their wider community health, I wonder if that's a C you're going to share with us, mm -hmm. cannot be underestimated. 
And whilst good management of diabetes will no doubt entail lowering blood glucose to the optimal targets for the particular person with diabetes, thinking about it just for a moment here, it's an expansive topic that's grown at leaps and bounds, almost paralleling the development of the chronic care model. I wonder if one of these C's is in fact for chronic itself. Yes, absolutely, Stan, very important. And I think this is something that most people with diabetes and of course their healthcare practitioners don't quite get. Diabetes is chronic. What does that actually mean? It means lifelong. It means that you are likely to carry that till the end of your life. It's never going to go away. And you actually have to think about that for quite a while. And it was quite funny. I'd already been in diabetes for about 15 years. So I understood chronicity. This is what I teach. And then I was diagnosed with asthma. Wow. <laughs> I had to really think about that for a long time. Surely, do I, do I really have asthma? And of course, I saw a very good pulmonologist, well-renowned at the time, Dr. Michael Plitt, great teacher in asthma. And he assured me that this was real. I had asthma. I had an atypical cough type of asthma, but it changed my life. It took about six months of the therapy before the cough went away. But eventually, since then, I haven't coughed. And I don't even own a salbutamol inhaler because I never get symptoms. And the reason is because I take my therapy every day. But it took me probably six months for it to sink in to a chronic care trained brain that now I had a health condition that would last me for the rest of my life. So if that can happen to me. Well, how much more to someone who you say, well, Jack, news isn't so good today. Uh, you have type 2 diabetes. Oh, so doc, uh, you know, how long will it take to treat? Well, it's never going to go away. Of course, the potential remission of type 2 diabetes is a current possibility, but that's not a cure, and it's another story for another day. But we can help you manage it. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's an essential pill to swallow. And once we understand that, then we can settle that, and now we can get on to the business of managing diabetes. I'm going to throw you another C here, and that's a curveball. <laughs> Because I wonder in the modern day, you know, we're so connected with what we do that I'm sure one of the C's may well, perhaps if it doesn't already, needs to stand for being connected, being connected to communities and the like. And that is a message that we're going to leave to Sweet Life Advocacy to share with us this week. Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. Peer support makes such a difference. And it doesn't have to be a formal peer support model. It can be being introduced to someone else who's living with diabetes, who's a similar age and has the same kind of diabetes and maybe even a similar background, but that doesn't even matter that much. What matters is being able to connect with someone else who immediately understands the language and understands how difficult it is and understands without having to be explained what things feel like. Obviously, I think Sweet Life Diabetes Community is the first place to start. We're on Facebook as South Africans with Diabetes, on Instagram as sweetlife.org.za. And our website has all kinds of answers to questions, every question you can think of to do with diabetes in South Africa. But there are also Cape Town and Joburg Type 1 WhatsApp groups. There are real life community groups that Diabetes SA runs. Whatever it is, I would highly recommend that anyone living with diabetes has some kind of peer support in their lives. Thank you so much to Bridget and to Sweet Life Diabetes Advocacy Group. We really appreciate all that you've done for advocacy in this country and for sharing in the mission of this podcast. And Stan, no, connectedness was not something I had per se in the core concept. So it's something definitely I can consider to add. We do talk about community and we'll get to that. But great message there, something to keep in mind. 
Okay, Michael, a big C, perhaps a capital C, would that be of complications that uh, can arise from diabetes, albeit type 1 or type 2, or those pregnancies that are complicated by diabetes? You said something very important in the early part of this podcast, that with the advent of the clinical studies coming out of predominantly North America, for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, that these complications could in fact be averted. Mm -hmm. I think for many people with diabetes, there's still this notion that harm is inevitable in diabetes. What do you say to that? That's a wonderful question, Stan. In our earlier podcasts, we reported on my participation in an advocacy course run by SA Diabetes Advocacy. And one of the things that came out amongst people with diabetes in that course was that on diagnosis, they were never offered hope. And I must say that is something that the CD Academy throughout its entire teaching career, basically as an organization, and we have always offered hope. And to do that, we intentionally, and many years before language matters became a thing, we've intentionally woven into our teaching certain words and choices of words that gave hope. And so whenever we in the academy talk about complications, we always preface it with potential, which means that already there is a vestige of hope there. You do not have to experience these complications. Yes, later language says the word prevent is probably not the best word to use because what happens if someone does everything to so-called prevent it and they still get it, then there's inevitable feelings of guilt and failure. And I get that. So nowadays we talk about reducing the risk for future complications, which still means that you might get a complication or more, but we are going to do everything we can to reduce that risk. And if a complication does happen and you've done everything that you should or could do, then you don't need to feel guilty. And that's an important thing to understand. So we always talk about potential complications and that they may be acute, which means they can happen in the next day or few days or weeks, or they can be chronic. And so we break them up for ease of teaching and understanding into acute and chronic complications. The acute ones are things we need to take very careful attention to quickly. And the main message about those is that they focus on avoidant or preventative action. And usually those acute complications are preceded by symptoms. So let's take a potential one of hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia being a potential acute complication of treated diabetes. We hardly ever see it outside of diabetes. So it's a potential complication of our therapies that we use. One of the first symptoms, and we'll probably get into this in the next podcast, is that you release a hormone called adrenaline, which gives us very well-defined symptoms. We feel sweaty, shaky, fearful as we prepare for fight, flight, or fright. Our body is saying to us, something is going wrong, you need to act now. And if we act on those, we can abort the slide to the later problems associated with hypoglycemia. The problem with the chronic complications is that just like diabetes, especially in the older person, they generally have no symptoms. And that is where most of the wheels fall off, both for people with diabetes and for health practitioners. If we go in saying what's wrong, looking for eye disease, we are going to fail. One day the person will phone us up in a flat panic saying, I've lost vision in my right eye. What's happening? And of course, we know that's a retinal bleed, and that is pretty much an irreversible complication. However, there could be 10 to 15 to 20 years before that, where if we are taking note of our understanding of diabetes and we are looking for sentinel indications of that forthcoming complication happening, we can take avoidant action. 
Michael, we are getting to the end of this podcast, and I want to come back to your own experience with chronic care in the setting of asthma. For many people who are recently diagnosed with diabetes, or perhaps people who have had great difficulty in adjusting to the diagnosis of diabetes, it can really be a big alphabet soup. For sure. And we're talking about all these letters today. Mm -hmm. But it needn't be the case over the long haul, in essence. And you've given a very nice overview of some of these concepts, another C that we could introduce in that sense. And the last one I want to touch on for today's podcast, and we're we're going to use an older word, but we all recognize what we're talking about here, is that diabetes can be controlled. Yes. Perhaps if we were using the letter M, we would say diabetes can be managed, which we know it can be. But for the sake of our podcast, when we talk about control of diabetes, what are we actually referring to in that sense? Right. So diabetes, if we look at the definition, it's a disorder of carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism that results in hyperglycemia. So at its very core, management of diabetes involves returning blood glucose back to a healthier range of experience. However, we also teach that diabetes is not just about blood glucose. It's essentially a global disorder of metabolism, so we have to take into account other factors like blood pressure and cholesterol and body composition and so on. But if we just were for the moment to focus on blood glucose management, we need to get that back into healthier levels. And as we said earlier, to build a house, we need to put a proper foundation in. The foundation of the management or control of diabetes is always on lifestyle, which means healthier eating, healthier eating choices. And that is in the province of the registered dietitian. And as we learned with Omi in a recent podcast, it needs that specialist knowledge and guidance to put into effect. The other lifestyle intervention is that of regular physical activity. And between those, they offer the ideal environment for then the medications that we necessarily use in diabetes to do their work in the best possible manner. And we must understand there's a bidirectional or tridirectional relationship between eating, physical activity, and medications. And that is why we need a team who understands each aspect of that core triad and to be able to manage those interactions. It sounds so easy in inverted commas to put those aspects together. It took decades and decades after the development of insulin to deploy those into clinical practice. And one of the wonderful things about working in diabetes medicine is the learning continues each and every day. Mm -hmm. We have a slew of new medications. We've got great tech that you can apply to enable people with diabetes lives to be made easier to manage over the lifespan in that sense. Michael, it's been a terrific tour de force uh, in essence of concepts that you personally have deployed into diabetes care. We recognize that in South Africa, we have the Diabetes Education Group of South Africa, the DESA organization, are formalizing that concept that exists. And it would be nice to hear if any of the listeners out there are themselves members of DESA or have interacted with DESA, share those comments with us as well. Uh, remember, our email address is podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Michael, perhaps one last C that we have for this podcast before we touch on other aspects is the C for ciao. Hey, the Italian for goodbye. I have to snuck that in there in that sense. <laughs> I think it's been a jam-packed session and I could sit and chat to you about diabetes for always and always. And I'm ever grateful for the time that you've put aside to help spread the word educational and advocacy for diabetes. I think you're doing a great job over decades and decades. And were my late boss alive, I think he would salute you for your excellence and service that you've provided people with diabetes and healthcare providers over the years. Thank you, Stan, and back to you too. Yes, I hope Larry is looking down on us and smiling. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Not Artificially Sweetened. 
For health professionals, we've only touched on a few of the core concepts of diabetes, but if you liked what you heard, remember that the CD Academy offers a foundation course in diabetes care for health professionals. Go to our website, which we will put in the show notes, and you can sign up for that course. And we will take you through that journey of self-awareness and personal change to enable you to be a more effective practitioner in the chronic care environment. So thank you for joining us in this show today, and we look forward to you joining us next time. And that's goodbye from me too. Until next time. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth, and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors, or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important, specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!